I'm going to begin with audience participation. I love this. I'm going to say four words. Four words. And I want you to tell me what scenarios you think they might fit into. Okay? What are the relationship scenarios? Here are the four words. You ready for them? Four words. You just don't understand. Marriage? Really? I hadn't thought of that one. Uh, what, what other scenario? Child or parent? Aren't those the two that just kind of immediately pop into everybody? There are other scenarios that they fit as well. I, I remember, uh, I guess it was about 25, 30 years ago, I read a book by the title, You Just Don't Understand. And the book was written by uh, Dr. Deborah Tannen. She's a professor at Georgetown. She's a sociolinguist. And her book was all about the thesis that male-female communication was cross-cultural. I don't know what that book would look like in today's political <laughs> climate. <laughs> but male-female communication was actually cross-cultural. Okay, I got it. Uh, but the thing is, the truth of the matter is that understanding between people who love you the most or you love the most, that understanding is sometimes pretty complicated. And there are layers of complication that you have to peel away and deal with from time to time. But despite the fact that, comp that communication between people who love you the most or that you love the most, despite the fact that that communication is complicated, there is one person who understands you better than you understand yourself. Audience participation. Who is that? Yeah, it's either God or Jesus. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, that's the answer to all questions, right? And it's an easy thing to respond to, almost in a cliche response, but it is deeply true. There's deep significance to that. There's, we can never say to God, you just don't understand. One aspect of the humanity of Jesus that I think we don't, ponder from time to time we don't think about it very much but it's very real is his understanding of you his understanding of me in the incarnation from the from the manger in bethlehem all the way to the cross those events remove the excuse and he says to me in my face i do understand i know you I know your thoughts, I know your temptations, I know your pain, and I love you. I do understand better than you understand yourself. The identification that Jesus feels with you is not just a theological category. It's to be a part of the way that you think. It's part of the reason why he took human flesh. You remember when the Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus to kill and torture more Christians to death? Do you remember what Jesus said when he stopped him? I've mentioned this to you a number of times. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? And then fill in the blank with the names of countless people whom he had persecuted. But he says, why do you persecute? 
me. And, and later on, Saul of Tarsus, in his Roman name Paul, who became the apostle, would write about the body of Christ and how we are all members of one another in the body of Christ. And how when one part of the body hurts, another part of the body hurts. And the implication is how much more does the head of the body hurt when we hurt. It's all kind of part of, of a piece. So I'm, I'm trying to say more than just, hey, I want you to know Jesus really, really, really understands. His understanding and identification with me and my suffering, you and your suffering, the complete biblical picture of it is bigger than that. And just, hey, really, really understand. No, no, it's greater than that. He is actually in your suffering. Isaiah 53 describes how he bears not only our sins, but also our sorrows. And that, that, that theme is, is, is all the way through the reactions of Jesus with us. So, God, you just don't understand. Yes, I do understand. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, puts it this way. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now listen to this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, I mean, who, who understands the grueling nature of a marathon more? The person who quits at mile 10 or the person who goes to the end? Jesus went to the end of temptation. There, so he says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't let those words just kind of bounce off your back. Why draw near to the, to the throne? What, what does he mean? That's what prayer is. When you draw near to the throne. That's what prayer is. And who is there already interceding for you? Jesus is. The focus in Hebrews here is on prayer. The focus on our passage in Mark 14, and I don't know if you've analyzed it this way, but the lens through which I see Mark 14 is the lens of prayer. Prayer will keep us in God's will. Prayer will help us to will God's will. And prayer will keep us from yielding to our temptations. In Gethsemane, God tells us, my child, you just don't understand. But that's okay. I do. The context for the passage that we're going to be examining is Passover week. We've been studying it before the Easter season. The Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the elders of the people, uh, they don't have much in common as groups, but they all have one thing in common now. They hate Jesus. Earlier in the week, they, they, they thought that may, they might want to just have him out of town to be rid of him. Now, every single group has as its goal 
They want him not silenced. They want him dead. He has uh, overturned tables. He has disrupted their sacrifices. He has contradicted their teaching. He's confounded their best debaters. And he has exposed their hypocrisy. And they want him dead. And now Judas is on their side. Apparently being treasurer of the disciples didn't give him access to as much money as he wanted, so he sold Jesus. In Mark 14, verse 26, the previous verses, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. And I'm just going to interrupt there. Peter says, no, not me. (laughs) Maybe everybody, not me. Maybe everybody else, not me. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times this very night. But Peter insists in verse 31, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then the next words introduce our passage. Verse 32, they came to the place called Gethsemane, or named Gethsemane. It's on the lower slopes, the Mount of Olives. Uh, at this time of year, the uh, leaves would have been, would have sprouted. It, it would have smelled nice. Because the, it's a Mount of Olives, right? And the word Gethsemane means olive press. So this is a particular place that was one of Jesus' favorite places to come. What took place there exposes just how real the cross was as it loomed in Jesus' mind. And I, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but what Jesus dreaded as he looked at the cross was not primarily the physical suffering. It was the suffering of absolute sinlessness as it was infused with the poison of the sins of the world. When Jesus began his ministry, Satan tempted him to turn his back on the Father, to walk away. Jesus refused, rebuked Satan. Recently, we've seen Peter try to talk Jesus out of the cross. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Here in the garden is Jesus' last opportunity to walk away before the soldiers come. His last opportunity to turn his back on the Father. And he agonizes in prayer because he knows that on the cross, when he absorbs in himself the wages of sin, which is death, and takes on himself not only our griefs and sorrows, but also the iniquity of us all, that The Father, and Jesus had refused to turn his back on the Father's plan, the Father will turn his back on Jesus. That's what he knows is coming. That's why Gethsemane is so powerful. Uh, Verse 32, they came to a place named Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, and this is to to the rest of the disciples, sit here until I have prayed. Then he took the other three, Peter, James, and John, verse 33, Peter, James, and John, the three that he's closest to, they were, they were present when Jesus has done various miracles over the, the span of all four Gospels. You see, sometimes it's just Jesus, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John with Jesus when he does certain things. They've seen his power over death. They've seen, they, were, they were the three present at the transfiguration. They saw Jesus' glory there. And here in the garden, they see his agony. And by the way, shortly after this, Peter and John are going to be, we don't know about James, possibly he was there too, but Peter and John are going to be in the courtyard. That's where Peter denies Jesus. They're going to be in the courtyard 
watching the trial, watching the hearing. So uh, they, the three of them, are eyewitnesses to so many things. That's why Peter starts his writings of the first epistle of First Peter by talking about what he has seen and heard and handled. Listen to First John, how John begins. First John uh, chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, that uh, life was manifested. We've seen it. We testify. We proclaim to you. Uh, the eternal life, which was with the Father, was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. First John 1, 1 to 3. You got it? You're, you will be my witnesses. They are eyewitnesses. Peter, James, and John are eyewitnesses to what they're later going to testify and proclaim to you. So he takes Peter, James, and John in verse 33, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. We're going to look at some words here. This is a, 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 this is a, a teaching opportunity to, to look at what Jesus says these two words, distressed and troubled, are not common in the New Testament. One of them occurs four times, the other occurs three times. And um, they, aren't, they are not words that describe fear as much as, and here's a, here's a phrase, shuddering dread, shuddering dread. Do you, you get the picture of that? I like the way one New Testament scholar puts it. Quote, the impact of the two words is incalculable and carries its own power to stab the reader wide awake. But I would add it didn't stab Peter, James, and John wide awake. The point I'm making is that the choice of these words of dread is intended to make us shudder. And it would have done that with the first readers, and it should do that with us. As he says in verse 34, he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved. To the point of death. And again, here's some more words. He actually uses terminology that is found in the Greek Old Testament only in two places. Both of them in Psalms that anticipate the suffering servant. Psalms 42 and 43. Just listen to these words from those Psalms. These are Psalms that prophesy this suffering, I think. My soul is in despair within me. Why are you in despair, my soul? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you, you in despair, my soul? Why are you restless within me? That's Psalm 42 from Psalm 43. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Why are you restless within me, within me? You're getting the echoes, aren't you? The echoes of the cross. But that's not all. There's a, another word here. Last word I'm going to go into. It's a compound word, and it's temp, it's It's intensified. It's not just my soul is gr deep is is grieved. My soul is deeply grieved. But then there's this added intensifier to the point of death. This is a grief that is prophesied. This is Psalms grief. This is Isaiah 40 to 66 grief. He said to them in verse, verse 34, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them. So it's the, he's a stone's throw from the first group and the second group can observe him and can hear him. Uh, Peter, James, and John because they're going to be witnesses of these things. 
Why are they going to be nearby? I think it's because they need to understand and we need to understand the agony of Gethsemane and what was going on here so that they could see and hear and share with us later some measure of the infinite love and grace and the sacrifice of Jesus because he fell to the ground and began to pray. Now we're going to return to Jesus' prayer in a moment. What did Jesus mean when he told the disciples to keep watch? That could be a little confusing. Are they on guard duty? We find out later that Peter had a sword. You're going to put it on his shoulder and march to and fro? Is that what Peter's going to do? You know, kind of sentry duty? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, verse 38, if you're skipping ahead a bit, verse 38 helps us understand, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. One meaning of the term keep watch refers to spiritual alertness, spiritual awareness. And that really fits better with the context and the way Jesus is about to rebuke them in these verses. Because first of all, it's hard to pray if you're on sentry duty, right? Secondly, guard duty has nothing to do with resisting temptation but spiritual awareness does. Third, they don't know about Judas and the soldiers that are coming, as far as we are aware. And fourth, they are to become reporters who witness the agony. So their focus, uh, what I'm saying is this, the focus that Jesus is pointing them to is not the soldiers. They don't know about that. The focus that Jesus is pointing them to is, to, is, is himself. The focus is on Jesus, his spiritual awareness, spiritual alertness, and that they are to pray. Now, there are two episodes of prayer in our passage. One is for the disciples, and the other is for Jesus. We've already read both of them. I'm going to skip ahead and talk about the disciples, and then I'm going to rewind and focus on this Jesus' prayer. Look at verse 37. Here we see the disciples he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, by the way, Jesus' nickname for Peter was the rock, right? Rock, rocky, Petros. Uh, Jesus, there was nothing that was stable and rock-like with Peter right now, so he, he, he reverts to Simon. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? This is a sad reality check, really, for all of us. But especially for Peter, who had just said that he was so committed to Jesus that he was going to die with him, no matter how much torture he might face. He would never deny him. So you can't stay awake for an hour. Verse 38, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. And the word you... Is not singular. It's not Peter. It's plural. It's all of us. Watch and pray that you all may not enter, come into temptation. And this is not meaning to be tempted. It means to yield to the temptation. 
And he explains the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, this is not an indictment. This is a statement of fact. And this is what actually I think Jesus himself is experiencing because in a way his spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. How does Jesus avoid the temptation to walk away from the cross? He's praying. That's what he's doing here in the garden. Again, in verse Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all points, in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near. Right? So in the midst of his agony, Jesus' concern is for the disciples. He doesn't ask them to pray for him. They're to actually pray for themselves that they would not fall into temptation, that they would not yield to it. They're the ones who are in danger, not Jesus. They're going to have their own battles ahead. And they don't yet understand. And this is what's been hitting me hard as, as I've been studying through this. They don't yet understand that their most effective weapon is prayer. Prayer. Prayer aligns our will to God's will. And so far, the disciples have been pretty good about resisting God's will, right? Peter rebuked Jesus about the cross. The disciples debated which among them was the greatest. Then after that, they debated which one of them was perceived to be the greatest. Most recently, uh, they're totally undiscerning about Judas. And their leader, Peter, is entirely self-deceived about his own courage. What I'm saying is, they're just like me, and maybe you. They will their own will. And so, they need to pray. We need to pray. You, plural, need to pray. Period. Verse 39, again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. That's the prayer that we're going to come back to in a moment. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. Very unusual for Peter. No response. Now, verse 41, he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? And they're embarrassed, I'm sure. Ashamed, probably. And I, I do want to say this. If Christianity were a religion invented by men, the foundational leaders would not have been portrayed as being weak and self-centered and pretty embarrassing. Now, I'm going to extract from where we've come so far to say this. To avoid willing our own will, to align our will with God's will, to avoid yielding to temptation, we need to pray. When we really pray, oh, there's that word really again. When we really, really, really pray, <laughs> when we're authentically praying, maybe I'll put it that way, then our pretensions fall away before God. The Apostle Paul later talked about prayer without ceasing, praying without ceasing. And there is an axiom here that I think is borne out throughout the rest of the, of the New Testament. Here's the axiom. Praying more results in sinning less. Why don't we say that together? 
Praying more results in sinning less. Again, praying more results in sinning less. Okay. I said there are two episodes of prayer here. We just considered the need for prayer for all disciples of Jesus. And what I want us to do is to look at verses 35 and 36. I want us to look at Jesus' prayer. This is the second part of prayer. He went a little beyond them, and does it say he bowed his head? In verse 35, did he bow his head? No. Does it say he knelt down on the floor with his elbows on the padded chair? Doesn't say that either, does it? What does it tell me? Fell on the ground, flat on his face. The only time we ever see Jesus praying in this position. He began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. He was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus repeated this prayer. We look at verse 39. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Probably a third time as well. I think we're to understand that. These verses are so important that you just have to stop and ponder. Jesus begins his prayer with the word Abba. That is a Greek transliteration of an Aramaic word, meaning as close as we can get to it, my father, my father. Uh, Jesus used this term as a, as, a, as a description of his intimacy with God. Abba is found, that word is found three times in the New Testament, in the Gospels only here. And twice, once in Romans, once in Galatians. And in each case, it's followed by the Greek translation, Father, Abba, Father. But we don't really have an exact word for it in English. Some people have suggested that it's something like Daddy. Uh, but it's actually deeper than a child's word. It's, it's possessive closeness. <laughs> of a mature son-father relationship. This is my father. The Jews rarely spoke of God as father. Never spoke of God as my father. That felt too intimate for them, too disrespectful for their status. But Jesus' sonship was unique and infinitely different from ours. That's why Jesus said in John 20 to one of the women at the cross, uh, at, the, at the tomb, I go to my father and to your father. He didn't say our father because his sonship was uniquely different from any kind of sonship that we have when he adopts us into his eternal family. I go to my father and to your father. The word Abba, intimate, personal, possessive relationship. My father. Next, look at the content of the prayer. Is Jesus asking God to ignore all those prophecies in the Old Testament and violate his attributes and go back on cancel the plan of salvation from eternity past? No. The meaning is, if it is possible for your will to will otherwise, that's what he's asking. As I said, the cup was not just the pain on the cross or primarily that the cup was when the wages of sin 
for all mankind, past, present, and future, what I do this afternoon, past, present, and future, were infused into the Son while He was on the cross. Where the, the finite, infinite paid the penalty and He died. And I want you to think about these words from Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Wages is something that's earned, right? Was it earned by Jesus? No, but Jesus paid it all. But the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus did not die the way that other, martyr, other martyrs will die. I think we need to just drive this home a little further. All other martyrs, these disciples here, Peter, James, and John, and the rest, all those in the first century church that we read about in Acts, all those who will die in Christ over the next centuries until the 21st century, and they, our brothers and sisters are still dying for Christ. All of them who are in Christ die knowing that the weight of their sins is gone. By contrast, Jesus died crushed down by the weight of the sins of the world. The wrath of God was poured out on him. It was not the wrath of God against Jesus. It was the wrath of God against sin. And it was turned loose on Jesus. The creator became the victim of his creatures. The sovereign planner became the chief victim of his own plan. Why? Because he loves you. Because of his grace. Because he'd rather die than live without you. And the next day, Jesus drank the cup of death. As most of you know, I've been dealing a lot with blood lately. <laughs> I'm told there's a difference between infusion and transfusion. Transfusion doesn't result in something new. Infus but here, the result of infusion, of sin into Jesus is something here that the universe had never seen before. Paul describes it in these words. He who knew no sin became sin for us. But I want you to notice Jesus' statement of submission. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Whatever the Father's will is, Jesus surrenders himself to it. The cup to be removed, that separation from the Father, uh, ethically, to be displaced by some other way of doing this. Oh, but Jesus' stronger desire, stronger desire than not to drink that cup, stronger desire was to do the Father's will no matter what that will might be. Prayer did not deliver Jesus from suffering, but prayer did deliver Jesus in and through suffering. So after Jesus prayed these things, verse 41, he came the third time, said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Then he made this statement, it is, it is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand, hands of sinners. It is enough, meaning, I think, 
I'm done here. My prayer has been answered. The Father has said no. And that's an answer to prayer. There is no other way. This is my path, and I will walk it. And in fact, uh, from this point on, Jesus moves calmly towards the cross and does nothing to change that trajectory. So he tells them, get up, not stand up. They're laying down like he was, only they weren't praying. <laughs> they were asleep. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So they don't run away from the soldiers or hide into the night, but rather walk straight towards Judas next week. This is the first part today of a two-part study. So this is to be continued. I want us to take a little bit of time here to reflect for a few moments on two critical truths, the cup and prayer, just to reinforce some of those things. And I want to start by looking at Jesus' prayer also as a pattern for our prayer in significant ways. For example, if you're looking for a prayer to pray, when you are suffering, and, and you and I are fully aware that the stakes for Jesus were infinitely greater than they are for you and me, but if you're looking for a prayer to pray when you are suffering, Jesus' prayer is right on target. The, the pattern applies. Relationship, sovereignty, supplication, and submission. First of all, relationship, Abba, Father. We have that relationship in Christ. I said that this word was repeated in Romans and Galatians. Just listen to Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, and that means sons and daughters of God, you're his children. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In Christ, you are a child of the King of Kings, and he will never let you go, ever. He is my father, my father. So when you enter into prayer, it begins with that relationship. And then notice the statement of sovereignty. All things are possible for you. Sometimes I think the sovereignty of God is, is a cause for great joy and it's a cause for great pain. Right? Because there are times when I know that God could will otherwise, and I think he should will otherwise, but he doesn't. Um, God could have made your life easier, but he didn't. So, what are you learning and how are you growing through what you are learning? That's a struggle that we all have. The fact that God causes all things to work together for good doesn't mean that all the things that God uses are good. I met with a, or had a phone conversation with a friend two days ago who, uh, I have several friends who are hurting deeply, uh, who are not in this church, and I get texts and emails from them, and uh, 
uh, I talked with one two days ago, and he's very athletic, uh, major tennis player, uh, wonderful Bible teacher, professor, and uh, uh, that what that is until his stroke, and now half of his body won't move, or won't move well, and uh, he and I were talking two days ago, and he's the most upbeat guy I know. <laughs> and he's, he's Gary, uh, I, you know, how, how are you progressing? Uh, is anything working with the physical therapy? Not really uh, that much. Uh, I may get better, I may not. It's in the Lord's hands. That's where it should be. I'm good. Hmm. As he continues to minister to the people around him. So there's a relationship, there's the sovereignty, and then there's the, the supplication, the honesty of telling your father what you truly want. Because, I mean, he knows anyway. Lord, all I want is for you to be glorified. Well, you, you want that, but you also would like to be healed, right? He knows that. <laughs> Tell him that. There's no problem in telling him that. Being honest with my father, who is sovereign in prayer. Lord, it's okay to pray for that. It doesn't offend him when you ask for that. Because of the last component of the prayer, and that is the submission part. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Willing to accept what God, God wills. And by the way, not presuming to tell him that he should will otherwise. Uh, apparently there are some people who teach that we're not to pray not what I will, but what you will. That's just bizarre. It goes against the pattern in James and Paul, and here, the pattern with Jesus. I mean, if Jesus had followed that teaching, we would have no redemption. And, and second, that's really telling God, not what you will, God, but what I will. Uh, informing God that you have a better plan for your life than God does. It's, it's a low view of God, really. If someone is teaching you that, run in the opposite direction. What Jesus is saying is, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But your will is primary. My request is secondary. Whatever the Father's will is, that's what he submits to. I can't help but be reminded here, when the Apostle Paul had his physical ailment, the thorn in the flesh, not sure exactly what it was, not told. I have an idea of what I think it was. Um, but it was at times debilitating and awful. And Paul went to the Lord in prayer, praying for himself, diligently stating his prayer that God would remove this thorn from him. And he mentions it three times. It's interesting, three times Jesus in the garden. He mentions that prayer, and he, he, he prayed deeply that that would be removed. And then God answered him in a way that he recorded and was inspired to write down he also wrote his submission to it. God said, are you ready for this? My grace is sufficient for you. For strength is perfected in weakness. And then Paul said, the outcome of this is that from God's eternal view, when I am weak, then I am strong. I can't claim any personal accomplishments for what God does through me. It's all him. There's an old saying, sometimes God calms the storm 
Sometimes God calms his child in the midst of the storm. And prayer will keep you from yielding to temptation. So that's the prayer part. And I, I want us to close thinking about the cup part. Jesus intentionally went forward to the cross knowing that he would be infused with our sins. I think this will always be worth repeating and never to take for granted or to put in a theological outline as a point of interest. Maybe think of it this way. The Father did not contribute anything to what's in the cup that Jesus drank. The Son did not contribute anything to what was in the cup Jesus drank. The Spirit did not contribute anything to what was in that cup. The angels did not contribute anything to what was in that cup. The reason for the cup, the reason for the incarnation, for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the reason for the garden, the reason the very cup, the cup exists at all was because of the sins of Peter and James and John and Gary and you. We filled the cup of sin for him to drink. And Jesus drank that vile mixture down to the dregs. That's the ultimate act of incarnation. When, as I mentioned before, he who knew no sin became sin for us. To God, that's not a theological proclamation in an outline. It's personal. My father did that. And because Jesus drank that, you don't have to. We are told to remember his body, and we have a cup, different kind of cup altogether to remember him. All kind of connected, isn't it? Whenever we feel God is not being fair with our circumstances, God, you just don't understand. Or it's not fair. <laughs> I want you to think about whether or not it was fair for Jesus to go to the cross to bear our punishment. God is not the one who just doesn't understand. And one more thing. It is almost blasphemy to think, well, you know, this sin doesn't really matter. Or that sin doesn't really matter. Yes, it does. It does. But Peter later wrote this about the cross, and I think he had the garden in his mind as well. First Peter chapter 2, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for us, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Amen? Amen. If there are any of you here today who are not following Jesus, you haven't committed your life to him, you don't have a relationship with him, you haven't had your sins forgiven through faith in Jesus as the unique son of God, 
It is true. You have the option to refuse Jesus' death for your sins. And you can choose to demand to drink your own cup. You can have your doxology be, I did it my way. And you can cling to your own toxic waste before a holy God, but you don't have to. As the old hymn goes, Jesus paid it all, right? All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So if any of you want to talk about that, if there's someone here who's interested in finding out more about that, I'm so glad you're here, and I'd love to talk with you after the service, or at any time, Lewis is here, elders are here, people around you, love to talk to you about what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know something else. I've uh, been meeting with a lot of people lately. Thursday, I met with a retired seminary professor. He and I have been friends for 30 years. He moved here a few months ago and uh, moved his father here into a nursing home. We were having lunch together with, uh, there were five of us all together. And my friend, tears started. He just, he just lost it. He said, after we moved here, just a few months ago, and his dad was in the nursing home, his dad, after decades of gospel witness, embraced Jesus Christ as his Savior. And then, a few weeks later, died. But he's with Jesus. It's never too late. It's never too late until it is. Well, as I said, this is the first of a two-part study. I'll finish it next week. Lord willing, unless he takes us to be with him. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to sing the doxology together after we pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness upon us. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the sovereign God of the universe. We thank you for the cup that Jesus drank in our behalf. And we ask, Lord, that those around us would share in the gospel, the good news of redemption accomplished and applied. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.